Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 20, uh, verses uh, 27 through 40. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. You'll remember that uh, back in the middle of chapter 19, Jesus finally arrived in Jerusalem after a a long journey that began all the way back in in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel. And you will remember that immediately upon arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. He, He drove them out because while His house was meant to be a house of prayer, they had turned it into a den of robbers. Not surprisingly, this wasn't all that well received by the Jewish leaders. And from that point on, they began seeking a way to destroy Jesus. And we see in the passages that follow that their resolve only hardens. In fact, by the time we come to verse 19 of chapter 20, we're told that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. After the parable of the vineyard, they were no longer willing to wait for an opportunity. They were now going to create an opportunity for themselves. We saw their first attempt to do this last Sunday in the, in the previous passage. The scribes and the chief priests came at Jesus with a question about taxes. They asked, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Of course, you know, they were not asking the question honestly. They were not seeking the truth, but rather they were seeking to trap Jesus. And they thought that they had formulated the perfect question. They they thought they had formulated the question that would destroy Jesus no matter how he answered. If he said that it was right to pay taxes to Caesar, then his claim to be a king would be discredited. For what true king would allow his subjects to pay taxes to his rival? But if he said it was wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, then then Rome would have to step in with all its considerable might to put an end to his little movement. So either way, Jesus lost and they won, or at least his enemies thought. But of course they were wrong. Jesus wasn't snared by their trap. In fact, his answer revealed that his enemies had completely misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingdom and therefore misunderstood the essence of his gospel. And we will see a very similar scene play out in the passage that is before us this morning. This time it is the Sadducees who come at Jesus with the question. And this time the question has to do with with resurrection. But the goal is the same. They are seeking to destroy Jesus, and the outcome will be the same. Jesus will not only avoid their trap, but he will expose them, showing that they have fundamentally misunderstood the gospel that he proclaims, and thus fundamentally misunderstood the true nature of the kingdom. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 27. This is the very word of God. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you humbly this morning, asking that that you would be with us as we turn our attention to your word. Father, that you would be with me as I speak, that my words would be true and faithful, and that they would communicate the truth of your gospel, and that you would give each of us ears to hear it and hearts to receive it, that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago, I saw an article in the USA Today that that showed a a riddle posed by a first grade teacher to her students. You may have, have seen the article yourself. The riddle said this, I am the beginning of everything and the end of everywhere. I am the beginning of eternity and the end of space and time. When I asked this riddle to my kids at the table, they answered it almost immediately. They, they knew it was the letter E, and that's exactly what the teacher meant. The teacher meant this to be just sort of a, a fun introduction to the letter E. However, the first student who she asked said, death, and that radically changed the tone of the classroom. But, <laughs> but she, she was just playing a game. It was just a, a puzzle to solve. And I remember when I was a kid, I liked riddles like that. I, I liked puzzles to, to solve, and I especially liked solving them before my siblings or before my friends. It somehow made me feel smart. It made me feel clever to find the hidden solution. And I think that's what a lot of people think is going on in this passage. They, they think that Jesus is pre- being presented with a riddle. He's, he's being presented with a, with a difficult question, and, and he is showing how smart he is, that he is smarter than his opponents by finding the hidden solution. But I hope to show you this morning that the question that is being posed to Jesus is more than a mere riddle. His enemies are not simply looking to stump him with a hard question. But rather, the question that they are asking strikes at the very heart of the gospel. Last Sunday, we we considered what the the scribes asked Jesus about paying taxes to to Caesar. It was a a hard question, but we saw that it was more than a hard question. It was a question that, that was at the very heart of Jesus' claim to be Lord. And here we will see 
that the Sadducees' question is at the very heart of what it means for Jesus to claim to be Savior. This isn't just a riddle. It is a direct challenge to Jesus' gospel. It is a a direct challenge to Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the one who brings to fulfillment all that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We see this in the design of the Sadducees' question. That's the first thing that I want us to see. What are the the Sadducees actually trying to do? What is the design of their question? Well, to get at that, we have to understand what's going on. First, we have to understand who these Sadducees are. And the reality is we don't know a lot about them. You've you've probably heard of this group before because they they show up throughout the Gospels. They they show up here and there. They show up again in the book of Acts. But we, we don't know much about them. They were a priestly class. And one thing we do know is what Luke tells us in the second half of verse 27. We know that they denied the resurrection They they deny that there was going to be a a resurrection from the dead at the end of time. And we have to understand that this wasn't the majority opinion among the Jews. The Sadducees were a somewhat despised minority. And one of the reasons was this. They, They denied the resurrection. Unlike the Sadducees, the vast majority of Jews believed in the resurrection. It was foolishness to the Greeks, but it was accepted truth to the Jews. And therefore, the Sadducees weren't going to discredit Jesus simply by showing that he believed in the resurrection. That might work today. If you, if you showed that someone believed in the resurrection, you might expose them as one of those silly religious people. But that's not how it worked in Jesus' day. Jesus wasn't going to be exposed for believing in the resurrection. So what is it that the Sadducees are trying to do? How is their question designed to work? Well, it seems that the Sadducees are trying to discredit Jesus, not by showing that he believes in the resurrection, but by exposing the absurdity of believing in the resurrection. They understand that the doctrine of the resurrection is essential to Jesus' gospel. And therefore, they think that if they can discredit the idea of the resurrection, they can discredit Jesus. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong to to think this way. The doctrine of the resurrection is essential to Jesus' gospel. Remember what Paul said. He said, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then there is no gospel. If there is no resurrection, then we are to be pitied above all men. The Christian gospel simply is no gospel if there is no resurrection. But why? Why is the doctrine of the resurrection so essential to the Christian gospel? Let me give you two reasons. First, the the doctrine of the resurrection is essential because our salvation is grounded in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Peter says this in in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says it is through Jesus' resurrection from the dead that we have been born again to a living hope. Paul says in in Romans chapter 4, he says that he was raised for our justification. Our salvation, our hope of glory is grounded in Jesus' victory over death. Jesus' resurrection is his own vindication, is the, the declaration that his death was not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. His resurrection, therefore, is our hope that he was raised, tells us that the salvation that is available in him is a salvation that is available to 
us. It is a, a salvation that will be accepted by God. His resurrection is the seal and the, the confirmation of our hope. But it is also the first fruits of our hope. That's the, the second reason. Not only is our salvation grounded in Jesus' resurrection, not only is it built upon that, that sure foundation that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, but Jesus' resurrection is a picture of what is being promised to us. It is a, a picture of the salvation that is ours in Him. Our hope entails our own resurrection from the dead. Our hope is not simply that we will escape the, the, the terrors of hell and live a disembodied life with God in heaven forever. That is not your final destiny. That is, that is not your future. Your hope is that you will one day be raised imperishable. That what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. That is what is sown in weakness will be raised in power. That, that you will be glorified not only in your soul but in your entire being, body and soul together. And that for all eternity, your body and soul made perfect, you will be able to glorify and enjoy God as you were created to do. That is your hope. That is your, your, your future. That you will one day be raised. And so therefore the, the Sadducees are right. They, they understand the importance of the resurrection. They understand that it is essential to the Christian gospel. And that's why we must see that this is not simply some esoteric theological debate to show how clever Jesus is. That's not what's going on here. But rather, this is a debate at the very heart of our faith. This is a debate over the very essence of the gospel. Jesus is Savior because the resurrection is true. And so what we need to see this morning is how Jesus goes about addressing both the error and the sin of the Sadducees. Let's first look at the error of the Sadducees' assumption. We see this beginning in verse 27. Notice what Luke writes. As we see, he says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the, widow, uh, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What the Sadducees are referring to here is what's called leveret marriage. It's a law that is set forth in Deuteronomy 25. And you need to know the law is pretty much as the Sadducees say. They are, they are not misrepresenting the law. They are, they are presenting it accurately. If a man died without an heir then his brother was to take his wife in order to produce an heir for his brother. Deuteronomy 25.6 says it this way, And the first son whom she bears, that is whom the widow bears, after the leveret marriage, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And when we hear a law like that, like, like many of the laws in the Old Testament, we, we find it strange. It, it, it strikes us as, as weird. It strikes us maybe even as somewhat contemptible, even as offensive. It seems offensive to us that the Bible would tell the widow whom she must marry or would tell the, the brother whom he must marry. Interestingly, the, the ancient Jews found the law objectionable for different reasons. To them, it was strange and offensive. Not that they were being told who to marriage. They were kind of used to that. But rather, they found it strange and offensive because they found the idea of raising up an heir for another as highly objectionable. To do so would have been a real sacrifice. 
For if a man died without heirs, his brother would inherit his land. His brother would receive what had been his dead brother's. And therefore, if he raises up an heir for his brother, he is in effect forfeiting the inheritance. This is, this is sacrificial love to do this. It's no wonder then the law was almost never practiced. In fact, it was even advised against by, by the rabbis. If you go back and look at the context of, of Deuteronomy 25, it is clear that, that bringing forth an heir for your brother was, was the, the right choice. Not to do so was, was covered with all sorts of shame. If you, if you refused to do this, you would have to remove your shoes in public and have the, the widow spit in your face. It was a shameful thing. And yet, the rabbi said that it was the preferred choice. It was better to deny than to raise up an heir for someone else. And opinions have not changed. In Israel today, it is actually illegal to do this. The, the laws are still on the books. So if, if your brother dies without an heir, you actually have to go through the shame of taking off your shoes in public and having the widow spit in your face. Now they spit on the ground in front of you. That's a little bit easier, I guess. But anyway, it, it's, it's still there. The law is still there. But everybody says, don't do it. It's too, it's too costly. It's too, it's too ridiculous to raise up an heir for someone else. It's a law that, that everyone seems to find distasteful. Why would God give his people such a law? I want to suggest to you that the law is meant to be a picture of God's grace. It's, it's a picture of the gracious salvation that he provides to his people. It's, of course, not a, not a full picture. It's not a one-to-one analogy. We don't learn everything there is to learn about salvation here. But there is a picture of God's grace here. And what it shows us is this. It shows us that the sacrificial love of a brother can overcome even death. Through the sacrificial love of a brother, an untimely death cannot negate the promises of God. They cannot keep you from receiving what has been promised. And is that not a picture of what we receive and what we experience in Jesus? Our brother through His sacrificial love, negated the power of death itself to keep us from all that God had promised. Because of what Jesus has done for us, even death cannot thwart God's intentions of working good for those who love Him. That's what this law is about. That's what this law shows us. It's a picture of God's grace. It's a a picture of God's power to overcome even death. And not only is it a picture of grace, it's actually an expression of grace. The law seems distasteful to us today, but it would not have seemed so to the widow in Jesus' day or in Moses' day. She would not have seen it as an imposition to be told who she had to marry, but rather she would have been thankful for the grace that was being shown to her. Remember, in ancient Israel, widows were were grouped together with, with foreigners and orphans, as those who were most at risk in society. They were those who had the least to protect them. They had the the least resources at their disposal. And a childish widow even more so. And this law was meant to be a protection for her. It was a blessing to keep her from from experiencing the, the, the ravages in this life of an untimely death of her husband. However, while... It is good for us to understand the purpose of the law. That's not really what this debate 
is about. The Sadducees aren't really concerned with the wisdom or, or justice of the law itself, but rather their concern is with the problem the law seems to pose to the doctrine of resurrection. We, we see this in verses 29 through 33. Look there with me. They, they describe a, a scenario. It's maybe a, a somewhat ridiculous scenario, probably a scenario that never took place in actual life, but it's still a scenario we can, we can imagine. Look at it again. They say, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Then the second, the third, and all seven. And then finally the woman dies, and they all die without having any children. And so the question is, in the resurrection, if there is such a silly thing, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? As far as the Sadducees are concerned, the absurdity of this scenario is, is, is sort of a, a, a proof that resurrection is an absurd idea. And therefore, they think they have Jesus trapped. They think that they have proven that the resurrection cannot be true because it's such an absurd idea. If the resurrection isn't true, then Jesus' gospel isn't true. The Sadducees can discredit the doctrine of the resurrection. They can discredit Jesus. And that's exactly what they think they've done. However, while the Sadducees are right in their assessment of the importance of the resurrection, they are wrong to deny it. And Jesus shows us this in two ways. First, he, he shows us that the scenario described by the Sadducees isn't really a, a problem at all. That's the error of their assumption. And then, second, he shows us that the Scriptures clearly teach the doctrine of the resurrection. And that exposes the sin of their unbelief. So first, the error of their assumption. We, we see this beginning at verse 34. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, there's a lot there. But in short, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that marriage is for this life and not the age to come. Therefore, the question of whose wife this woman will be is moot. It's a, it's a moot question. It doesn't really matter. They're, they're asking it based on wrong assumptions. Now, that's difficult for us to, to follow. It's difficult for us to process. It's, what, what is Jesus saying? It, it seems... That Jesus is saying the reason marriage is not part of this age, or, or not part of the age to come, is that in the age to come, people can no longer die. And because death isn't a part of the age to come, marriage isn't part of the age to come. But, but, but why should that follow? Why should it be that because death is no more, therefore marriage is no more? Well, I want to suggest to you that the, the logic is something like this. In the beginning, God gave man a mandate. He, he, he gave him a, a job to do. He, he instructed him with, with a certain purpose. And that purpose, that mandate, was to subdue the earth, to, to rule it as, as God's representative. And the command to multiply or to have children, to, the command to, to fill the earth, was given in the service of the command to subdue. The command to subdue comes first. The command to rule comes first. And it is only when the command to subdue is repeated that he is then given the command to, to multiply. And so multiplication or filling the earth is a function of subduing the earth. Man has to multiply if he's truly going to subdue 
the earth. And we see in Genesis 2 that it is marriage that is the, the context within which that multiplication is going to take place. So God gives man marriage that he might multiply so that he might subdue the earth, so that he might do that for which he was created. And that's sort of the logic of what's going on here. Marriage is given for the sake of multiplication. Multiplication is given for the sake of subduing. And so in the age to come, multiplication will no longer be part of the picture. The full number of God's elect will will be there and none will ever die. This is what Jesus means by equal to angels. He's not saying that we become angels when we die, but rather that we become like angels or, or equal to angels in that we will no longer be subject to death. And because we will no longer be subject to death, there will no longer be a need to multiply. And therefore, there will no longer be a need for marriage. That's the, the logic, I think, of what, what Jesus is, is saying. But, but even when we kind of lay it all out, it's still, it's still hard. <laughs> It's hard for us to process because we don't think of of marriage as exclusively for the the goal of of multiplication. But rather, marriage is is one of the greatest blessings that we experience in this age. Even before the fall into sin, God said it is not good for man to be alone. And he he gave us marriage as as a great blessing even before the fall. And so we wonder, how can something that is so good now not be part of the age to come. And I think if we're honest, we just have to say we're not sure. I don't know exactly, but I can, I can offer this explanation. I think that it strikes us as a huge loss not to have marriage in the age to come. Because marriage is the most intimate relationship we experience in this life. How can life in the age to come be good if it's devoid of such a relationship? And I I suspect the answer is found in the nature of all relationships in the age to come. In that age, all relationships will be at such a different, higher level, untouched by sin, that we will experience an intimacy and a joy in every relationship far beyond even the best marriage now. Even the best marriage between two sinners will will pale in comparison to the relationships we will enjoy in the age to come. I I suspect that's the answer, but let me be clear, I'm guessing. I'm not not 100% sure. I I don't know fully why we will not experience the loss of marriage as an irreparable loss in that age. But I can say this for sure. I can say this for certain, and I want you to know this, that whatever God has in store for us, Whatever God has in store for us in the age to come will be exceedingly, abundantly better than anything we could ask or think. We we may not understand it now, but we need not be too worried about it because our Heavenly Father has it under control. He's the one who's in charge. And in fact, I think that's sort of the point that Jesus is getting at. Jesus' goal in this is not for us to understand all the details of of relationships in the age to come. That's not the the main thing that Jesus wants us to see. But rather, the main thing He wants us to see is the arrogance of the Sadducees in assuming that they know more than God. And assuming they know more than, than He has revealed. You see, the Sadducees find the doctrine of the resurrection unbelievable 
because it creates in their mind irreconcilable difficulties. It, it, it creates problems that just can't be solved. And Jesus is, is challenging them. And he's, he's challenging us to acknowledge that, that we don't know it all. That we don't see all the pieces. That we don't understand all the ins and outs. That, that in the end, we are finite creatures who must tr- trust our infinite Father. We must trust God to be God. We must trust Him to be good. We must rest in what He has revealed, even when we don't fully comprehend it. And that will be true not only for marriage in the age to come, but for all sorts of questions. This is not the only thing you struggle with, I'm sure. This is is not the only question you have. There are other things that you, you can't figure out. The status of of marriage in the age to come isn't really probably very high on your list. You have questions. You You wonder. And in such situations, Jesus is warning us not to be like the Sadducees. We must not assume that our little brains are the final arbiter of truth. We must not think that anything we can't understand or anything we can't make sense of must necessarily be False. We must not subject God's word to our reason, but rather we must submit our reason to God's word. I'm not saying that we become irrational. I'm not saying we we check our brains at the door. We're not anti-intellectual around here. It's not at all what we are are saying. God never asks us to, to believe logical contradictions, but he does ask us to believe things we cannot fully comprehend. He does ask us to believe things we, we can't fully wrap our minds around. He does ask us to believe that His truth transcends our understanding. And that shouldn't be too hard for us. Have you ever played a puzzle game that you couldn't solve? It's frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> You're messing with the puzzle. I used to play this game on my phone called Unblock Me. And, and you know, the first few levels were, were easy, but eventually I got to levels that I was just sure the, the programmers had made a mistake. There was no way to, to solve this, this puzzle. And that's what we conclude, isn't it? If I can't figure it out, it must not be possible. If I can't do it, it can't be done. But the moment you give up, what happens? Someone comes along and and shows you how to do it. Someone comes along and and shows you the solution. The solution that was there the whole time. I've had that experience more times than I care to admit. Why then? Why then if we fail to see the solution to a simple puzzle game, do we assume that, that we would be able to see the solution to the mysteries of the universe? Why do we think that if there's a solution, we should be able to see it? Why, why do we think that if, if we can't see it, there must not be a solution? It is utterly foolish and it is supremely arrogant. We must be willing to submit our minds to God's mind, our understanding to God's revelation, because the salvation that He has in store for us is bigger than we can wrap our minds around. The glory that He is storing up for His children is is beyond our ability to fully process, beyond our ability to fully see. We must be willing to let God be God. We must be willing to submit ourselves and to believe what He has said. And one of the things that He has said is that there will be a resurrection. 
that those who die in Christ will be raised. And that they will enjoy life eternal in the age to come. That may make you seem like a fool in the eyes of the world today. That may seem, make you seem like, a, like a, a simple, superstitious religious person in the eyes of those who see themselves as sophisticated. But we must believe it because God has said it. God has said there has been a resurrection. This is what makes the Sadducees' unbelief not only an error, but sin. We see this in verses 37 and 38. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living For all live in Him. Jesus is referring to what we know as Exodus chapter 3. If you remember, the the Old Testament has not at this point been divided into chapters, so He simply calls it the, the passage about the bush. But why does He pick this Passage. Why the, the passage about the bush? Well, for one thing, it's a passage that the Sadducees recognized. The Sadducees were known for discounting everything after the, the first five books of Moses. That was their canon. And so Jesus, in, in grace, picks a part of the Scriptures that they recognized as Scripture. But there's, there's more going on than this. He, he picks Exodus chapter 3 for a particular reason. He picks Exodus chapter 3 because there Moses refers to Yahweh as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a, it's a familiar text. He, he could have picked any number of Old Testament texts where, where God is referred to this way. And Jesus says that when God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob at the burning bush, that this proves the resurrection. This is about the third thing in this text that we're like, how does that work? <laughs> how, how, what's going on here? How, what's the logic? How, how does that prove the resurrection? What Jesus is saying is that if God is still the God of Abraham in the day of Moses, then Abraham must be alive in Moses' day. But, but why? why? Why does that follow? Well, well, to make sense of this, we have to remember that Abraham died without receiving what he had been promised. Right? Abraham died... And the only piece of land he owned in the so-called promised land was the tomb where he buried his wife and himself. That was it. He he died without receiving the promise. It's what the author of Hebrews says. He, He tells us, referring to Abraham and others, all these died, how? In faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They still stood a long way from the fulfillment of all that had been promised to them. And this is the key. This is significant because if Abraham died without receiving what he was promised, then one of two things must be true. If Abraham died without receiving what God had promised to give him, then either God is not the God of Abraham, which is an untenable conclusion for any Jew in Jesus' day, or Abraham was still alive in Moses' day. And is still alive today, waiting to receive all that he had promised. It's one or the other. If Abraham died 
without receiving what he was promised. And either God was not faithful to him, God was not his God, or else he is still alive and waiting for the fulfillment of what had been promised. In other words, to deny the resurrection, to deny that Abraham is still alive, awaiting his resurrection, is to deny the covenant faithfulness of God. If there is no resurrection, then God is not the good and faithful, promise-keeping God of His people that is revealed to us in the Scriptures. For if there is no resurrection, then His people died without receiving what He promised. This is why the resurrection is so central. This is, this is why it is, is so essential, because our hope is not a hope for this age. Our hope is a hope for the age to come. You see, what God has has promised to His people will be ours. But it will not be ours here and now. In this life, yes, it is good to follow Christ. Jesus tells, tells this to Peter after his conversation with the rich young ruler. In this life, you will receive many good things. But it's in the age to come that you will receive the full promise. It's in the age to come that you will receive eternal life. It's in the age to come that you will receive the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is why the the Sadducees attack the doctrine of resurrection. And this is why we must believe it, even when we can't fully understand it. Even when we can't wrap our minds around it, we must remember that our God is a good God. He is our good Father. And He will not fail to give us all that He has promised. As the law of leveret marriage shows us, even death cannot keep us from receiving all that God has promised to give us. That's what this passage is about. God has in store for His people something good. Something beyond imagination. Something that we cannot fully comprehend and even death cannot keep us from receiving all that He has promised. In this life, you will experience trouble. In this life, you will groan. But you are able to endure it for the joy set before you. Even as Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before Him, we endure the trials and the struggles of this life for the joy set before us in the hope of resurrection. What does Paul say? Having been justified by faith, we now rejoice, how? In the hope of glory. That is our hope. We have a hope of glory. The Sadducees attacked Jesus because they said if there is no resurrection, He cannot be the Savior. And Jesus said, you're right. If there is no resurrection, I'm not the Savior. But there is a resurrection. And the question is, will you believe it? Will you take God at His word? Not because you understand it. Not because you can figure it out. But because your good Father said it. That's what the Sadducees wouldn't do. It's what we're called to do. Will we submit ourselves to Him? Because if we will, Jesus says, you will be counted worthy, not in yourself, but in Him, to receive the resurrection, to attain to life in that age as a child of God and as a son of the resurrection. And because He gives such a blessing to all who take Him at His word, to all who believe in His Son, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your promises. We confess that we sometimes find it hard to believe because our brains are small. 
But Father, I pray that You would give us the grace to humble ourselves and to believe what You say before we believe what we understand. Father, give us the grace to rest in Your promises that we might walk in the joy of the hope of glory that is ours in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.